Welcome to the 223rd of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today is a discussion in partnership with the LePage Center for History and the Public Interest of Villanova University. And today's discussion features Chrissy Lau and Preeti Sharma in a discussion of the anti-sewing squad. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. And you can hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. Really excited for today's discussion. Just a quick programming note here in partnership with the LePage Center for History and the Public Interest of Villanova University. They had a competition for funding over the summer in 2020, and there were a number of projects that were funded, including the one we're going to hear about today. We'll be featuring those on COVID calls in the weeks to come. Today is the first of those discussions. I'm very excited for it. As of today, February 18th, 2021, there are 2,436,774 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 492,302 deaths reported in the United States. That's up from 489,748. There have been 47,902 deaths from COVID-19 in the state of California. It's a way to bring some humanity to the numbers. I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way. And I'd like to continue that now with a really moving tribute to disaster researcher Dennis Maletti, which was written by Amanda Ripley and appeared February 18th in the Washington Post. When I last spoke to Dennis Maletti, Amanda Ripley writes, one of the world's leading experts on how humans behave in disasters, he told me he was frightened. It was March 19th, 2020, the dawn of the pandemic, and I didn't know what to make of it. In 16 years of interviewing him as a reporter, I'd never heard him say he was scared. Not after 9-11, not after Hurricane Katrina. Maletti was frightened, not because he thought he was going to die. Like most of us, he told himself he'd be spared. Of course, I don't believe I'm going to get it and die, he told me, laughing at himself, because I'm a human being and process risk like anyone else. No, he was worried for the country. It had been only eight days since the World Health Organization had declared a pandemic, but he could already see that the government was failing to properly respond. When I stop thinking and just lay in the quiet, I get really scared, he said. Valetti died of COVID-19 on January 31st. We'll never know how many people could have been saved if authorities had followed the disaster communication guidance that Maletti helped develop as the head of the Natural Hazards Center at the University of Colorado at Boulder. We just know that guidance was not followed. Going into this catastrophe, we had many pre-existing conditions, a hyperpolarized country, 
decentralized, inequitable healthcare and education systems, and a president who showed little loyalty to the truth or to science. Maletti could see what was coming in a way I could not. We have people saying it will be over soon, and other people saying it could be months, he said back then. That gives the public the ability to pick the answer they like, which is the number one no-no in public messaging. I'd never heard him be particularly partisan, but he was profoundly disappointed by the politicized federal response. The feds are just an embarrassment. If you don't know what you're doing, don't do it. As he predicted, people picked only the messages they wanted to hear about the need for masks, about the timeline for a vaccine, about whether schools could reopen. This included certain governors, school districts, and of course, the then president, and contributed to a crazy quilt of conflicting, incoherent policies, more public distrust, conspiracy theories, and runaway blame. Letty wasn't dour. He delighted in provoking people to get them to change. I remember watching him speak at a disaster research conference shortly after Hurricane Katrina. He wore a Hawaiian shirt and brought no PowerPoint slides. There were 400 experts in the room, and when it was his turn to talk, he stood up and started preaching about the hurricane. How many people do you need to see pounding through their roofs before we tell them how high the floodwaters can be? How many citizens must die to get us to do it, he said, his voice rising. If you can't create the political will, do it anyway. Belletti did serious quantitative research, but he also knew how to talk so people would listen. He understood that emotion, social networks, and group identity matter more than most things in disaster planning. He also knew that people, being human and complicated, would need to tailor their plans to their personal needs. After he retired to the California desert, for example, his own earthquake preparedness kit included a bottle of gin, a tiny ice cube maker, and an electric generator because he knew he'd need a martini if he survived. He always kept his eye on the people, said Monica Shock Spana at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security on what would motivate people to put themselves out of harm's way. If he were still alive today, Maletti would urge authorities to admit what they don't know, to roll out the vaccines according to how humans actually are wired, not how we wish they were, to listen to people, to understand their fears before you tell them what to do. Then make all public directives as specific, consistent, and clear as possible, and be sure those messages come from many different sources, especially now, when trust is so rare. Last year, I didn't quote, Amanda Ripley says, I didn't quote Maletti saying he was frightened. I quoted him saying other things because the truth is I didn't want to hear it back then. I was still in denial myself, which is the typical first response to every disaster. Maletti died two days before his COVID vaccination appointment, according to Lori Peak, the current head of the National Natural Hazard Center. For the rest of us, there's still time to honor his life by following his advice, to spend as much time and money investigating our sociology as we do developing our vaccines. Tribute to Dennis Maletti in the Washington Post by Amanda Ripley. Okay, we're going to turn to our conversation for today. Let me introduce my two wonderful guests to you. Chrissy Yi Lau is an assistant professor of history at California State University, Monterey Bay. 
She writes histories on race, gender, religion, and empire, and she has published her research in the anthology Gendering the Trans-Pacific World, and a special issue on Asian American public history in the journal Southern California Quarterly. She's also researched and developed museum exhibitions for the public and digital exhibitions in the classroom. Second guest is Preeti Sharma. She's an assistant professor of American studies at California State University, Long Beach. Her writing on race, gender, and labor have appeared in the Journal of Asian American Studies. She has supported numerous research, justice, and storytelling efforts, including with the UCLA Labor Center. She's also co-lead author of the first national study on labor issues in the nail salon sector. Preeti Sharma and Chrissy E. Lau, thank you so much for joining me today on COVID Calls. Thank you for having us. We're, ha yeah. we're so happy to be here. Thank you for having us. We're excited. Well, I'm excited too to hear about this project. Uh, and I want to start out the way I usually do, just finding out a bit about you, where you're calling in from first, and uh, what the pandemic situation looks like there. Chrissy, could I start with you on that? Certainly. Um, I am currently in Monterey, California. Um, uh, we are still in the middle of the pandemic. Um, uh, I'm, I'm a professor here, so we're still in our second semester of online teaching. And uh, they are rolling out phase 1A of the vaccine. Um, and actually, just today, um, the city of Monterey County, uh, or the city of Monterey, um, actually revealed their plan of the next phase and uh, a potential timeline of when they can uh, pass out the vaccine to other candidates. Would you say that people there in Monterey have been pretty much following public health advice? What would it look like if we walked down the street in Monterey today? Um, I would say for the most part, uh, many people have been following protocol. Um, when I go out for my walks, I see my neighbors wearing masks when we're walking outside. Um, when I go out to supermarkets, everyone's wearing masks uh, and socially distancing. Um, restaurants are closed down. Um, if they are open, they have opened up patio space um, and they try to socially distance as much as possible. Um, there's a lot of takeout um, and uh, all the students are not here. They've gone home. They've been sent back um, from uh, the student housing that we have here. Um, so for the most part, I do think that people are following um, guidelines that the CDC's laid out. It must feel to you that you've been living this a long time. I mean, the greater San Francisco, Northern California area has been aware and taking action around COVID longer than almost anywhere else in the United States. Maybe, um, you know, you can talk about the Seattle area, but you've really been in this a while. And I feel incredibly lucky to be in California um, and led by a lot of the leaders here in California, especially um, really outspoken um, women of color leaders in San Francisco who initiated the shelter in place policy. And, and from their kind of modeling, that's when our governor, Jerry Brown, issued a statewide order. Um, so I feel very lucky to be in California where they really early on implemented um, guidelines on how to uh, prevent COVID-19 from spreading. 
Preeti, let me bring you in. Same question, where you're calling from and, and what's the situation there with the pandemic as you see it today? Well, Scott, I, I have to start off by saying I do normally live in Los Angeles, um, but I'm actually speaking to you all from South Florida today, and that's part of the facet of my university being online. Um, but um, I did come here to be with my parents about three to four months ago uh, due to some personal reasons. Um, but when I left, um, Los Angeles numbers were about to experience an uptick. Um, so about two to three weeks after I left Los Angeles, it really started to surge. Um, and it, it kind of hit that devastating uptick that folks have sort of seen in um, the news and sort of popular uh, media. So at that time in December, I'd actually heard from friends who were healthcare workers who were being reassigned from you know, the OBGYN unit, for example, and put on pandemic floors and on pandemic um, COVID cases, right? And you know, there's also this story about how full hospitals were, um, the kind of ERs sort of waiting and the sounds of ERs, uh, ambulances um, sort of circulating in the streets. Um, and then I also, you know, currently um, am continuing to hear from friends and students um, actually about their losses of siblings, parents, and grandparents. So it's, you know, it's the numbers are going down in Los Angeles now, thankfully. Um, but, um, you know, the death um, count and, and the sort of experience of death is still very much um with us and it's it's just really sad it's just, it's still a lot of grief um it's still i think pretty challenging um to grapple with and um you know being here in florida is a little bit different from my first you know you know uh six you know plus months in los angeles um i'm not going out much because i'm with my parents um but I did recently see that our county, Broward County, currently holds 10% of the state's COVID cases. I mean, that we also have one of the highest numbers of UK variants. So I'm, you know, particularly cautious um, and then keeping my eye towards vaccine distribution as well. If you had to choose two places taking more diametrically opposed approaches to the pandemic, you'd be hard put to find two more different places to go from Southern California, from LA County to Broward County. And you were and you moved there, uh, visited there just before the, so you've been there through the election and the post-election period. Um, no, I was actually in Los Angeles during the election, okay. but I did leave just right after that. Um, <clears throat> in fact, it was right when our book draft was due and I was like, if I, if I can get away now, <clears throat> it's probably the right time. But I had no idea, uh, particularly, you know, as Chrissy alluded to, you know, there was a, a way that, you know, a sense that we had in California that our, you know, our um, sense of shelter in place and the social practices around mask wearing was different. But of course, you know, the variant, um, uh, you know, different ways of um, kind of like handling um, some of the gatherings, I think um, it just, I, I think it surprised folks. Yeah, in Los Angeles, I would say. Well, thanks to both of you for that sort of context and um, glad you're doing okay. Uh, and I want to turn to the conversation a little bit more about your work now and about this project you've been doing as well. And I want to make sure for those who are only listening to this, when I say anti-sewing squad, I'm not talking here about 
people who are against a sewing squad. I'm talking about the anti-sewing squad. And when I grew up in Texas and we said aunt instead of aunt. I don't know. I, I, I guess we'll have to figure out who says that, how and why, depending on regionality. But um, so it's auntie, A-U-N-T-I-E, sewing squad. And we're going to turn to that discussion in a second. Just to set the stage a little bit, I really want to find out more about um, the sort of research questions that each of you are engaged with, because that might help us understand why this project fits into your sort of broader set of interests. And Christy, Christy, let me start with that with you. What are you, um, what are the main areas that you're focused on in your work these days? Um, well, I'm a historian, um, and my focus is on race, gender, religion, and empire. Um, my next book project uh, is actually entitled Trans-Pacific New Women. Um, and so in that book, um, I really kind of trace um, the emergence of the new woman uh, in the Japanese-American communities in Los Angeles uh, between the Roaring Twenties and the Great Depression. And um, I'm really interested in, in, in how young Japanese-American women uh, kind of navigate between two overlapping projects. The first is um, how Japanese elites and imperialists and, and kind of modernists, um, how they um, endorse this imperial project of the Japanese modern woman um, with um, also the uh, the second project of how kind of U.S. white liberals also endorse their um, Americanization goals of uh, passing on new woman values to Japanese American young women. Um, so between those two projects, I uh, I, I argue that um, young women uh, negotiated it and created uh, what I call the trans-Pacific new woman. Um, so they combined racial uplift. Uh, with kind of new models of femininity or womanhood uh, to create um, uh, kind of a multiple model of the trans-Pacific new woman. And do you find that the kinds of research subjects that you're looking at are, are people who are actually in transit across this this space? Is that also part of what you're what you're considering? So women who literally have to inhabit sort of one world in the Pacific and then one world in the Pacific realm in California or the West Coast? Yes, um, exactly. And, and I think of transit broadly, not just moving physically between US and Japan, but I think of it in terms of their, their exchanging ideas, mm. whether it's through um, newspapers. The, so their newspaper, in, um, in the, particularly in Los Angeles, was printed in both English and Japanese, and they would always reprint articles um, from popular newspapers in Japan. So they, there was a lot of intellectual ideas being exchanged, but there was also a lot of um, uh, cultural exchanges happening. So uh, they they had conferences through the YWCA where they often met with speakers um, from Japan and then also speakers from the US. Um, and then also, of course, um, just thinking about it uh, socially. Um, in mm -hmm. terms of like how they, well, from especially from um, the their parents and the leaders of the the immigrant leaders of the community, they had their vision of creating youth as these what they would term cultural bridges um, to be the the people that would bridge between um, older immigrant folks in U.S. and then also. Mm -hmm. um, uh, kind of U.S. white liberals, and and then also kind of creating better 
international relations between U.S. and Japan. I can only imagine, excuse me, I can only imagine now, if you weren't looking for it before, that you're also um, finding ways that they think about disease uh, and public health across that space. That's That must be an interesting feature of it for you. Yeah, this, this pandemic has really made me rethink um, my project. Uh, at first, I, I didn't think about public health at all. And but my time period is exactly when around the 1918 pandemic happened and right. aftermath. And so when I think about, um, you know, what's going on here and how we all had to re really shelter in place and they and in the 1918 pandemic, they practiced some of the same social protocol that we are doing now. Many of them stayed at home, many of them wore masks. Um, so they didn't socialize at all. So th I, that makes me understand why in the 1920s it was roaring and people were going out to the movies and people were singing and dancing because they were just craving, I think, for human interaction and social like intimacy. Um, so I think it's it's helped me make a lot more sense of why um, why everyone was so surprised at the flaming youth and they were always out and about. I can't wait to read this work. Thank you for that. Preeti, let me bring you in on this as well. Just give us a sense of the kind of issues and, and research topics you've been following as a sort of background when we talk in a minute about the anti-sewing squad. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, like Chrissy, uh, my project um, you know, deals with a, a facet of Asian American feminisms and questions of um, intimacy, um, but particularly from the lens of service economies. So I focus on um, South Asian immigrant women's labor um, in South Asian owned threading and beauty salons um, from the 1980s to uh, 2020. So it's a kind of, um, you know, fairly recent um, immigrant um, entrepreneurial space, um, but also a space uh, for um, South Asian immigrant, uh, primarily Indian and Nepali Indian um, immigrant and refugee women. Um, and so I, I look at the emergence um, of these salons, but also the nuances of labor, um, particularly located in intimacy and affect, and then um, the regulation and um, activism and organizing that's quite dynamic um, and specific to these sites. Um, so I, I draw from feminist theories of work um, and then also feminist labor histories of racialized and gendered service work. And are you doing um, interviews like contemporary? You're talking to living subjects yeah. to do this work? Absolutely. So the, the project is based on um, several years of ethnographic um, fields work, but also, you know, interviews um, and, you know, oral histories. So conversations um, with uh, primarily workers, um, some owners, and then um, uh, a lot of informal conversations with customers. Well, Chrissy, you may be doing the same thing. I don't know, but your project seems a little bit f further removed in time. But Preeti, um, if you're person who's been doing ethnography and all of a sudden you find yourself in the middle of this pandemic. I've spoken to lots of people who do ethnography about this, so I have to ask you, um, what's it been like to all of a sudden see all of your field work go online? You know, it's been really odd, you know, this disruption, um, uh, you know, shifted um, the ways to do research conversations. Um, and, you know, I was kind of gearing up to kind of go back, you know, I 
go back in the field. Um, I hate to do these <laughs> quotation marks, but um, in the summer, but you know, all of our, our travel uh, was disrupted, but the salon space was disrupted, right? And you know, the pandemic has taught us so much about the centrality of the beauty salon and how social something like a haircut or a manicure or getting your eyebrows done really is. Um, and even like the kind of like bodily feeling of my hair is growing, you know, what do I do? Um, and so, you know, yeah, having access to just being able to hang out in these social spaces is completely disrupted. But, you know, women's low wage women's, you know, income was disrupted too. And um, so instead, I've, I've chosen to kind of think about um, what, you know, one, what organizing looks like in this moment, um, two, the kind of policies um, that are circulating to address, you know, concerns of unemployment, misclassification. Um, and then, you know, three, you know, seeing if I can talk to folks virtually. But it is it is a complete challenge. It's interesting that you know, some of those themes you just hit upon, particularly um, nail salons and other similar kinds of establishments as social spaces and the disruption of that um, is a nice segue to thinking about this project that you're both in, engaged with. And I wonder, Preeti, let me stay with you. If you could sort of set the stage for us a little bit about what the Auntie Sewing Squad is, where the project comes from, what's it about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I would say the Auntie Sewing Squad is a mutual aid organization um, to get masks, cloth masks in particular, to um, the most vulnerable populations affected by COVID-19. Um, so, you know, initially, uh, Christina Wong, who is a comedian, um, but also a part of um, her Koreatown Neighborhood Council, an elected official and leader in that sense, um, was, you know, kind of concerned along with um, some of her other artists and creative friends whose work were equally disrupted in the pandemic. Um, and folks were just sort of talking um, online through Christina um, about, uh, you know, essential workers, grocery store workers, nursing home workers initially. Um, and how there was a lack of of protective personal protective equipment and i you know i will make a distinction between cloth masks and government regulated ppe um but really you know the lack of government regulated ppe just kind of struck a chord with folks um and it's a sense of what can we do to protect um, you know folks who are being asked to go into to go into work to risk their lives um, and at that point, I think it became obvious that there were large groups of Black, Indigenous, people of color, um, you know, women of color, service workers, who are really not being provided any protection. Um, after then, to some extent, some you know hospitals and some um, stores, you know, did pass on some form of of um, PPE to their workers. But it was you know those first initial weeks, if not months, um, it was really heartbreaking and challenging to sort of navigate and see, you know, what forms of protection do people need? Why do people have to be put in harm's way in this, um, you know, these industries? Um, and, and essentially, what can can people do um, about it? And so, you know, that's where I think Auntie Sewing Squad came in as a digital space. And, you know, Chrissy can can sort of speak to this as well, but really, developed an extensive network online. <laughs>
Um, well, let me turn to to you, Chrissy, to get a little bit more about how it how it developed and how people engaged with it. And I just want to um, underline something Preeti said there. Just for you know, this pandemic. We were talking about this before. Time is very weird in in COVID in COVID days, but um, uh, people have to remember that in those early that early month, particularly four, six, eight weeks in some parts of the country, um, you had essential workers who were wearing garbage bags. I mean, I mean, it's, to say this was a national disgrace doesn't is too flat. It doesn't really capture the nuances because there's vast inequalities that were also revealed in that. And I've talked with Terrell Hagler, for example, who's a sanitation worker in Philadelphia, and he's described, and they've never been identified as essential workers. Um, but he talked about the struggle to get masks and gloves for sanitation workers in the city of Philadelphia. And that was really an afterthought um, in terms of government. They were focused on other things. So just to recover that context, Pridia, that as you did, is is something I think we all have to go back a minute. Maybe we even suppressed that horror um, a bit. It's good to have it right back in front of us as we understand what the anti-sewing squad was all about. Chrissy, let me bring you in on it. Um, uh, yes, just to kind of add to um, what, what both of you have discussed, in those early months, um, the anti-sewing squad was really founded as a critique of um, the U.S. government's failure to provide proper PPE um, to residents in, in the U.S. So in, in those early months, um, I think they really just thought about figuring out um, kind of neat tricks or hacks to figure out how to protect themselves. Um, so many of them are uh, like have a history of being daughters of immigrants who know how to sew, who are, have taught them how to sew. So, uh, and then they come from, you know, households that hoard materials. Um, so luckily, you know, they have these, the history of skills, they have the materials and they could use that to kind of make masks. Um, and they're really also drawing from um, their communities. Um, so these are, you know, Asian American communities are transnational communities. We are watching not just what the US is doing, but we're watching how Asia is responding. And so at that time, uh, one of the ways in which they're responding is making masks or providing masks. And so um, from that, I think many of them started, you know, watching YouTube videos, creating masks for themselves, um, and then um, just to re reiterate what Preeti said about um, then really kind of um, pivoting to providing masks to vulnerable communities. Um, and I think that just to add, I think Christina Wong kind of um, put out a call, uh, just offering if you don't have a mask, um, she's happy to make one. And she actually received a ton of requests um, more requests than she could herself sew. Um, and so this is when she started to build um, a mutual aid organization known as the Auntie Sewing Squad and, and um, receive help from other aunties who knew how to sew. Um, and she really created this um, organization that were, you know, aunties sew masks. And then she builds partnerships with grassroots organizations or um, community nonprofits um, in order to get those masks out to communities. So there are a lot of groups that 
uh, the anti-selling squad have prioritized, um, um, including farm workers, um, those that are uh, incarcerated, those communities that are living on the US-Mexico borders, um, asylum seekers, um, and then low-income communities of color. Um, and, and so I think from the start, the anti-sewing squad has really, um, really made its mission to, um, like as a critique of the US government's failure to provide proper PPE, and then also to recognize um, the continuing history of disenfranchisement and not prioritizing by POC communities when it comes to um, aid and health. I have so many questions about this. One is just about logistics. So it, it, as you're describing it, I mean, did the anti-sewing squad, I mean, it serves as a distributed sort of mutual aid network. Um, do members of the network go looking for essential workers in need, particular hospitals, people working in, in carceral facilities, whatever it may be, or or the other way, once the word got out, those communities came looking to the, to the squad members to provide. Explain a little bit how that give and take worked. Chrissy, let me start with you and then I'll bring Preeti back in. Um, so I, I would say the answer is both. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of the members of the anti-sewing squad, they have um, longer histories of activism. So they have histories of working with by POC communities. Um, so um, we have um, a group of aunties known as the super aunties, um, and they are the main coordinators um, between the anti-sewing squad and the grassroots or communities organizations they work with. And so their entire job um, is to cultivate relationships, is to ask them what, what, what these communities need, and then go to the anti-sewing squad um, and, you know, uh, basically ask and coordinate masks uh, from us to be made and then to be sent out. Um, and so luckily these super aunties, they they come with histories of activism, they come with community connections. Um, so a lot of these super aunties have a history of working with Native American communities. Um, they, they had worked um, with Standing Rock protesters and they were really politicized with the No Dapple movement. And then we have other aunties who um, really care and have family with the farm workers um, communities. And so she prioritized getting masks sent out to them. And then we have other aunties that like create, create like these, um, create these relationships. So they'll sometimes go and ask, I, I think we have one auntie go and ask uh, prisons uh, if they were in need of masks and to also cultivate that. But I will say um, before I um, hand it over to Preeti um, that we also have, um, later on, we developed a, a vetting process because later on, I said both because then it, then once word got out that the anti-sewing squad um, makes and sends masks to vulnerable communities, we started getting a lot of requests um, from different organizations. And so then we had to create a vetting process. Um, and in our vetting process, um, it's not that we don't want masks to be accessible to all communities, we do, but but because we value our labor um, and we see our labor as unpaid um, and we see our labor as um, generosity and mutual aid, um, we wanna make sure that our masks are going to the communities that we think will, that need it the most and that will be best served by them. So we have a vetting process where um, we basically ask a ton of questions 
um, to make sure that we are working with um, community organizations that are that are anti-racist, that that actively look at um, uh, look and like promote solidarity practices, um, and that actually um, serve the communities and not hurt them. You know that there's so well. One thing I wanted to just comment on also at this stage is just the the name of the organization and then invoking the auntie which must have sort of deep reverberations um i mean there's nothing unintentional about that could you just say preeti let me hand it to you just say a little bit about the the name itself and what auntie connotes because maybe not everybody thinks about the auntie and the auntie's role in certain kinds of communities um, absolutely. I, I will say that, um, you know, uh, the auntie is very much intentional and, you know, the auntie song squad um, <clears throat> being um, formed and, and led primarily by Asian American and um, other women of color, you know, the term auntie um, has, uh, you know, significance or meaning in terms of um, our kind of like familial and social relationships, relationships of um, victim kinships, but also relationships of care, right? So, you know, the auntie is um, a figure or someone who is maybe outside like the immediate family unit, but is someone who um, does do a lot of caring labor, can, you know, provide maybe food or sustenance or fun or emotional kind of support. And so, um, you know, aunties are the ones who kind of step in and, you know, bring in that um, emotional reproductive labor when, you know, everyone else is burdened. Um, and so I think that's part of the understanding or part of the discourse of this group. Um, and it is, you know, in some ways, um, part of like Asian American um, you know, generational experiences to some extent. Um, as a, you know, someone who is South Asian, you know, auntie doesn't always have the best light. And, you know, there's kind of fun cultural critiques um, in South Asian American pop culture, um, you know, where like the auntie is kind of a gossip monger or a snoop or um, someone who's like there to police your, your gender and sexuality. But in this particular case, you know, auntie's in that sense is, is um, holistic and, um, is totally leaning on notions of care. Um, oh, um, thank you for that. And I yeah, think that's absolutely. an important context to bring. And I should have asked you that first. But but then to go a little bit further about um, just picking up, Preeti, let me stay with you on this, but to pick up a point Chrissy made, um, I think very intentionally, about the formation of the group and its activities as a, as a form of critique. So say a little bit more about that. And because one might have thought, you know, if we were having this conversation a year ago, yeah, still even a year ago, the idea that making masks um, was somehow a form of political uh, critique or protest would have been very strange to, to people. They wouldn't have really maybe thought about that. I mean, that's another sort of artifact of our COVID time. Say a little bit more about what that means as a form of politics. Yeah, you know, the politics of the anti-sewing squad has been so powerful to, to watch and be a part of, um, you know, kind of leaning on what Chrissy said about a lot of folks in the anti-sewing squad having um, different activist experiences and a, a range of that, um, you know, there it was intentional um, on the part of, um, 
you know, the auntie sewing squad to fill in um, this gap. Um, and, you know, I want to highlight that it's not a stopgap, um, that there's a sense that we're going to be here to make masks as a form of protection. Um, and even the, the politics of mask making um, has been so um, uh, divisive and in like, you know, the American public sphere, it's been so um, bipartisan in some way, or not even in some way, it just has been. <laughs> um, but the, like, the, the, the work of, of wearing a mask, I'm not even talking about making it, but the work of wearing a mask is a form of care, because it's the idea that you're not passing virus particles onto the next person. Um, and so, you know, literally the project then of mask making is, you know, starts, starts right there with that form of care. And then the labor of making that um, mask is um, absolutely another layer of recognizing that one, you know, why isn't the government shutting down on a federal level? Why are, you know, two, all these states having to create these piecemeal projects that were frankly imperfect and still are? Um, and, you know, three, um, everything is is sort of really reliant on like that worker or that community to kind of get access um, if the company isn't doing it or if, you know, um, it's, it's, you know, masks are not in your, your city, you know, like your grocery stores, you know, places didn't have uh, these protective um, materials. And, and again, you know, going back to that initial March, April stage, um, masks weren't recommended by the CDC in part because as a country, we did not have them. We did not physically have enough stock of, you know, government-grade personal protective equipment. So that form, like all of that, like in, enmeshed in all of that is that critique. Um, so it's it's really deep. Um, and it, it is about, you know, folks' um, sense of, of multi-layered um, care, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And let's, let's stay with that um, because, so it's an initial form of critique. I mean, first you have just uncertain information. So people just don't know what's needed. Um, and then when it becomes sort of clear, people are gonna need masks, particularly essential workers, and they're not there. Of course, that's an opening for, for action, but also for mm -hmm. criticism um, mm -hmm. and to voice that. But then the mask discussion throughout 2020 takes turns that to me still are going to need a lot more unpacking. Um, first of all, the the murder of George Floyd and the massive social protest that follows. So now the wearing of a mask becomes essential for another type of essential work, which is to go into the streets and demand justice. And then by the summer, the denial of the mask becomes not just a sort of fringe political activity, the denial of wearing the mask becomes part of an electoral political strategy of one of our two major political parties. That's a set of observations that you both know and not even a question, but I just wanna sort of get your thinking about this because the, I wonder how the anti-sewing squad's discussions evolved throughout the year as the meaning of the mask had changed. Maybe Chrissy, I'll bring you in on that first, and then Preeti, I'll bring you back for some more comments on this. 
I, I appreciate the way that you put it because that is exactly, um, I think how, I think I would describe it in the anti-sewing squad that the meaning of the mask did change over time. At first, um, it was a, a form of protection and a critique um, against the US government. Um, and then it became a, a form of radical care as Preeti um, really kind of elegantly explained. Um, and then, um, and then by the summer, um, masks actually become a symbol of cross-racial solidarity um, and also um, a, a, an act of radical care and not, uh, or an act of mutual aid and not charity. Um, so we did, by the summertime, um, we received a lot of requests for masks um, for people who are safely, who want to safely go and protest. Um, and at this time, of course, there's BLM protests. Um, and actually, protesters, they like sometimes aunties went out and um, they were already all wearing masks. Like they didn't need the masks when we were out there passing it out while protesting. Um, but there were also other protests happening, like, um, for instance, Native Americans um, in California, border, the California Mexico border, they were protesting against the border wall being put up on their sacred land. And also that, that they, um, they were protesting the fact that the federal government went around them and didn't consult them. Uh, and that being building a wall there would actually destroy a lot of their sacred religious objects. So, the, um, so they're also protesting uh, indigenous sovereignty rights. Um, so there are a lot of mass protests in the summer. And so the, um, the anti-sewing squad quickly um, had conversations about it. And we even had a day of solidarity where the aunties needed to um, sew with intent and think about um, actively practicing anti-racist um, politics and, and that we need to remember the folks that we sew for have been historically disenfranchised and are um, made most vulnerable during COVID-19. Um, and so through those conversations um, and through the sharing of like how to be an ally, how to be an anti-racist, um, we really recommitted and doubled down uh, on our masks and cultivated new relationships with um, communities and grassroots organizations that serve black communities. And, and we really saw it as a sign of solidarity, not charity, um, and supporting those communities. Um, and I, and I, I will say that once it turned in fall um, and they had those kind of anti-mask politics, um, at that point, I think the antis really looked at it from afar. And, and our focus was really on serving the communities that have been the most, um, the most negatively impacted and so and and creating access for them and so for us it's we're continually trying to reframe the conversation on masking um, even from the start to reframe it as something that is protective that something is that is a public health issue um, something that is a form of solidarity and then just to like double down and keep doing our work um, and so I think that the anti-sewing squad continually like focuses on that. I wanted to maybe uh, somehow see how that intersects with some historical trends around um, the needs for protection for, for laborers. And Preeti, I think this might intersect 
meaningfully with the work that you do in nail salons. I'm thinking about, you know, people in American society who need a mask or who wear a mask on a daily basis, if they're in the healthcare setting or they're in a sanitation setting or any number of settings, um, including um, nail salons, I would, I would think. Um, so that the presence of the mask is sort of, sort of already out there, maybe not really examined enough as a sort of um, important tool for people to do their work. And now this meaning is shifting and changing throughout the time, it seems like an opportunity to me, um, first of all, doing the work that you're out there to do, which is to make sure people need protection, but also a way to have deeper conversations about labor and the lack of protection for laborers that transcends this pandemic. Yeah, you know, something we think about in um, the book and, you know, in our just conversations overall um, is the, you know, inherent devaluing of um, women of color's labor, of um, particular um, service economies. And, you know, we didn't have to go very far um, in the sense that, you know, most folks um, who are in the anti-sewing squad, um, well, maybe I shouldn't say most, but some folks in the anti-sewing squad are, um, you know, uh, daughters or granddaughters of um, former garment workers. Um, and if you think about garment workers, for example, in Los Angeles, you know, when the, again, initial shelter in place happened, uh, that whole industry shut down. Um, and in Los Angeles, you know, you do have, um, you know, the highest number of garment workers um, in the, the country. Um, and so, you know, 100%, again, of like women's income <laughs> was shut down in, at this moment. Um, but then actually the city takes a turn and names, um, you know, garment uh, factories as essential work um, and garment workers as essential work. But the irony, again, uh, kind of highlighting, like to your question, the contradiction of labor in this moment um, is that, um, you know, factories are indoors. Um, they're kind of, you know, sweatshops are notoriously known for, you know, having these like hot, you know, like, you know, windows closed kind of environments. And, um, you know, the Garment Worker Center, who some folks in our organization are, um, have histories with or um, support, um, you know, like came to the table and was like, we, if you're going to do this, we need to do this right. Like we're, we're reopening to reopen kind of a sweatshop space and we need to make sure garment workers have masks. So, you know, we never had a former formal relationship, um, the anti-sewing squad and um, the garment worker center. Um, but we did again, as part of our, our sense of um, care and understanding labor and understanding how difficult it was also to get kind of materials to sew masks in the initial stages of the pandemic um, did kind of like talk back and forth with um, like, oh, here we found a supply of cloth. Would some of the garment workers who through the Garment Worker Center, you know, um, were not going to factories, but were sewing at home um, and selling their masks differently from us, right? Because ours were free <clears throat> and ours were meant for um, communities who are um, in most need. Um, you know, so there's kind of like a, a, a very informal relationship. So it's, it's kind of a, 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 a roundabout way to answer your question, but it's sort of just sort of thinking again. Um, to the kind of notions of of um, labor. Yeah. Well, you know, no one would choose 
um, this context for it to happen in. But I have to say, the amount of journalism that's been out there in the last year about uh, it's the extended essential workers, as you said, the sort of garment workers, um, meatpacking workers in Iowa and Nebraska, agricultural workers across the country in different states, not to mention people in the allied health professions and 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 the need, as I mentioned earlier, like for sanitation workers. Um, work has been on the front page of the New York Times again. And to not take advantage of that moment and really say, yeah, there's real danger here for essential workers who are being put back in these environments um, in the pandemic. But that risk was there before, and that risk will probably be there after. Chrissy, I guess I wonder if you could say a little bit more about how the anti-sewing squad as a movement may go beyond the pandemic. I mean, is this the basis for some, you've, you've used terms like solidarity and mutual aid. I mean, that's the basis of, of politics that goes well beyond vaccination, isn't it? Yes, it does. And it's really funny that you asked this question because um, I think um, the anti-sewing squad have had conversations because there were always asked um, if we're going to become a 503C nonprofit organization. Um, and our answer to that is always no. Um, one of our core values is that we, as a mutual aid collective, seek to be obsolete. Um, and that's because um, we are we imagined ourselves as filling in a need um, where you know someone else failed. And we will do this for as long as um, we should or need to do this, but um, we also want to hold other institutions accountable to the fact that they are not um, doing what they need to do to protect uh, vulnerable communities. Um, so in that respect, we actually don't seek to institutionalize our organization. Um, but with our book and us as a collective, um, we hope that some of the values that we have practiced in our group in our group um, will be shared um, and will continue in the post-COVID world. Um, so our book, you know, um, which is titled The Anti-Sewing Anti Squad Guide to Mass Making, Radical Care, and Racial Justice During COVID-19, um, it is a, is a document um, and is um, a manifesto of how we can continually to take care of ourselves um, uh, and take care of our communities uh, in, the co in the COVID world, but also in the post-COVID world. Remind listeners that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking with Chrissy Yi Lau and Preeti Sharma, two members of a movement called the Anti-Sewing Squad, um, much more than politics, as we've been describing mutual aid, solidarity, and the physical manufacture of masks to keep people safe. And my guests um, are writing a book about this project as well, as you've mentioned a little bit. Um, and they've agreed to stay on a little bit longer to talk about that part of it. And so let's talk a little bit about how your involvement in, in the anti-sewing squad then 
has turned to your participant observers, I guess, but that sounds too clinical. I mean, you're you're living it, but you're also documenting and analyzing it as well. So Preeti, let me, um, I would like to hear from both of you just about what made you think this was a good idea to write about and then how you've gone about um, writing this. And, I, and I, I'm really keen to sort of understand your method because I think a lot of us right now are trying to figure out how we're going to write about COVID. Uh, and there's so much data coming in constantly. It's hard to stay focused on a topic. Even our discussion this last hour about the anti-sewing squad has gone 25 different directions. It's hard to keep us a single narrative, although maybe that's not your goal to have a single narrative. Preeti, can you tell us a little bit more about the book? Yeah, definitely. Um, so <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing because my parents do get a lot of phone calls. <laughs> And you're going to hear like CVS on the phone or something. But um, oh, we get calls, we get cats, <laughs> we have children, guest stars. <laughs> COVID calls is all about what's going on around the call, too. So, um, and that's, you know, that's something that we also wanted to document um, in uh, this, this project um, is, um, you know, what it means when um, you're asked to stay inside, but you want to provide uh, mutual aid and protection uh, to folks outside. And so your home, you know, not different from uh, traditions of um, homework or forms of garment work um, becomes a site of um, producing masks and cloth, you know, just sort of takes over your dining table. Um, but, you know, speaking of dining tables, I think um, this book was really also motivated by um, kind of histories of, um, you know, women of color feminisms and the sort of anthology project um, that is a part of that tradition. Um, and so, you know, it makes me think of Kitchen Table Press. Um, it makes me think of books like This Bridge Called My Back. Um, and even in Asian American feminisms, we have histories of, you know, making waves, making more waves. And so there are these multi, you know, voiced, um, you know, kind of dynamic anthologies with, um, you know, contributors who are invested in this political project. And, you know, part of the Auntie Sewing Squad is, Yes, you know, um, we're providing mutual aid, we're practicing mutual aid, we're defining mutual aid, we're doing it within the framework of radical care, which is again part of these like feminist traditions. Um, but the other part of the group is that we're providing a social space digitally, virtually for folks to convene when we're isolated, when we can't get together, um, when folks were afraid to initially get some of those materials and those materials were scarce. Um, and so there's a lot of kind of dark humor in the group. You know, we, let's not forget that Christina is part of this as a comedian. She's also performing. <laughs> and so she takes on... Um, you know, a performance role as a critique, again, to sweatshop labor, for example. Um, and so, you know, that dark humor was pretty unique and it provides a, a perspective of levity in these dark times and these times also filled with basically grief and uncertainty. Um, and so, you know, aunties themselves were just really incredible who, you know, are folks who are artists, creative folks, um, you know, folks who are, you know, generally generationally related to garment work. Um, and again, folks who are activists. So I think we're just really motivated by how unique this is. Um, and certainly there's the ethics of like rushing to tell a story in a moment where we ourselves are 
experiencing like intense grief. And I, I think that's potentially part of our like our purpose in politics too, is to navigate this as writers. Um, and, you know, certainly it's about telling the story and creating a living document. Um, but I think it's it was just another way for us to come together, honestly. Chrissy, your, your sense of what it's meant to be working on this book project and even the way Preeti is describing it sounds like it's kind of the way I think about COVID calls. It's, it's a way for me to cope and process what I'm living through as well. Yes, certainly. I think um, while there has been so many, so many um, terrible things about 2020, I think the anti-sewing squad has been such a light um, for me and um, it's created access to a community that otherwise I, I wouldn't even know. Um, like I knew pretty somewhat, but then once we kind of joined, like, and once we became co-editors, like we've gotten um, to know each other on a whole new level, which has been so lovely. Um, so it's provided a sense of community in a, in a time of isolation. Um, and this project has been like another baby to us. <laughs> um, and I think that, um, as a historian, I think that I really wanted to tell the stories um, from the perspectives of these incredible BIPOC women um, in the anti-sewing squad. And we wanted to center their voices. Um, so, so I think that we wanted to provide a space for that uh, in terms of how we were envisioning the book. And, and I think for them, they were so excited at the opportunity to also kind of write and think through and be creative um, and, and with all of their feelings about COVID-19 and, and being a part of the anti-sewing squad. So it was so lovely um, to get to read their works and to develop you know, editorial relationships with them um, and to like, connect with them on another level besides you know, the labor of sewing, but also you know, they are artists, they are cooks or like chefs you know, who, who offer their recipes. And, and so it, it's just another nice aspect that treats like, or, or that resembles a core value of the anti-sewing squad and that we treat people as whole beings that they're not just a form of labor, but they're, they're also someone that needs care and they, they also have these other lives um, as well. I'm listening to you both talk, I think about a guest that I had on in December named Heather Schulte, who's um, been leading a project called Stitching the Situation, um, in which people come together and so she provides materials and then people come together and they're stitching, basically um, documenting numbers of deaths, but in an artistic pattern. Um, which will come together into larger textile production and um, not um, too far removed from the kinds of impulses that motivated the AIDS quilt, for example, and other sort of collaborations that come together to make work, um, to, to bring people together in making um, so that there are physical products in the end that become documents of our time. And I am really moved by the way you're describing your book project because you're doing a lot of things simultaneously. Um, it's an artifact of this time, but it's also rooted in the kind of historical sensibility and anthropological sensibility you both bring. Um, and I think in the in the full title, Chrissy, you, you also use the word, the term handbook, right? Guidebook. Guidebook, I'm sorry, guidebook. So that also implies it's something someone can pick up 
and apply to other situations. And, and I wonder if you, either one of you, maybe, or both of you would like to speak a little bit to that aspect of it as well, because that implies it's something that goes well beyond this pandemic, as we've discussed a little bit already in our conversation, the work you're doing here, you want to, I assume, be applicable for the next pandemic, the next disaster, or the day-to-day -day disasters of labor and inequality in America. Well, I can quickly plug and say, you know, Scott, if you do want to make a mask, there are going to be mask patterns at the back of the book <clears throat> in the appendix. I do um, want to. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. I think that's yeah. an important feature of the book. Um, and it was something that the group had to stumble through, um, honestly, is uh, trying to navigate and find mask patterns that were circulating mm -hmm. online, um, but then also through trial and error, create the ones that we found fit faces better. Um, and so you'll see a couple of the the styles of, you know, literal sewing patterns as a guide. Um, but, you know, as you allude to, um, the book is also a guide for thinking about, you know, the terms of care, um, how to like understand devalued um, work, um, unpaid work, um, and how to shift the relations we hope of that, um, what that offers for um, also like this, you know, conversation on essential work um, that, you know, we've seen the kind of exacerbation um, of uh, poor working conditions that existed before the pandemic. So like, what is the real crisis? Um, so I think this guide can allow us to understand like multiple forms of uh, crises and, um, you know, how uh, again, like a group of women, women of color came together to imagine ways to value each other um, and also to value the very communities that um, were in need. Very early on in the um, pandemic, in those days, it didn't seem early on. It was at the end of the terrible month of April. Um, I had a May Day um, COVID calls and, and my guests were uh, Eileen uh, Boris and Silvia Federici, and we had a really, uh, for me, just totally mind-expanding discussion, and it really resonates with what both of you are saying um, about uh, radical care and about unrecognized labor, reproductive labor, and the home as a site of labor that is just goes un- documented throughout most of human history, throughout most of American history. And so I guess I want to reflect on that with both of you a little bit. I know this, um, you, you don't think this book can cure all ills in one book. No one book can do that. But I do think it sounds like it's going to be a contribution to that ongoing discussion in literature as well. Um, and I wonder, maybe you could just speak to that part of it a, a little bit. Um, you know, who, who should be reading this book? Where is it going to fit in, in terms of, of students or activists? Uh, who's going to pick up this book and use it, do you think? Chrissy, let me turn that to you. Um, I, first, I think it does continue the conversation on um, invisible labors in the home. Um, and I think Preeti can speak more to it. But um, we do have a section of the book on the theme of labor. Um, and one of the lovely pieces that one, one of the aunties contributed was just a picture of her sewing space. 
Um, and she has her sewing machine, it's on the kitchen table, and she has tons of fabric lying around um, because we want to make visible uh, women's labors during this time. Um, and, and we want to also, like as a guidebook, model or provide um, an example of how to value uh, women's invisible labors in the home. Um, and part of that is um, the radical care component. Um, and so as a guidebook, just kind of tacking on, a part of it is like we have mass patterns, but we also have recipes um, because a lot of um, a lot of the anti-sewing squad, the reason why we can continue is because we take the time to nourish each other. Um, and so we provide care for each other, whether in the form of food, um, or whether in the form of conversation or whether in the form of tea or like workshops on how to make kimchi. Um, and so that, that's that been such a central component to the anti-sewing squad. Um, and so we wanted to include that also in the book um, as, as a guide for how to care for each other. Um, I, I'm, I'm actually forgetting the initial question that you asked. Oh, yeah. um, does it continue the discussion and who, who is our audience? Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that um, we see this book really reaching uh, many different audiences from academics to students, um, to activists, um, to people in the arts, um, like comedic circles, um, because our, our, uh, our overlord is Christina Wong. Mm -hmm. um, so we're really thinking about and speaking to um, a large group of people. Um, so we want it to reach as broadly as it can be. Let me just remind folks you're listening to COVID Calls and I've been talking with Chrissy E. Lau and Preeti Sharma about the Anti-Sewing Squad today. We're almost out of time. Actually, we're over time, but I've kept my guests too long, but I've enjoyed this conversation. And um, I, there's one more thing I wanted to to bring up with this. Um, and. And I guess it ties back to our conversation about the mask, but it transcends that a little bit. And that's the startling, um, although not surprising, I think, um, to many Asian Americans, but the startling violence and vitriol and racism of this year as well. Um, and I'm, that's another layer of understanding mask making and mask wearing, particularly for Asian Americans and Asians who are in America at this time. And I wonder, Chrissy, if you want to address that first, and then I'll bring it to Preeti. But just another context of this um, that underscores the need for solidarity, but maybe somehow um, is eye-opening to people that they thought anti-Asian bias was somehow some 19th century thing. And then all of a sudden we see Asian Americans being attacked on the streets in major cities because somehow this is the president of the United States is calling it, I'm not even going to say it, but he's, he's using an epithet to refer to this virus and people are picking that up and, and acting out. Chrissy, what, do you, what are your thoughts on that? I think that's a really important component that we need to remember, especially at the start of the pandemic, where there was actually quite a, quite a, a lot of anti-Asian violence. Um, and it, and it, occurred in supermarkets where um, folks would yell racial, racial slurs or chase you know, Asian Americans out of supermarkets. Um, and so even something um, as small or as large as that um, really, I think, affected a lot of members of the anti-sewing squad 
Um, many of us didn't want to go out um, because we were scared that we would be on the receiving end of um, anti-Asian sentiments. And on top of that, um, because masks were not normalized, um, if we wore masks, we would bring even more attention to ourselves because that, um, that read to many people back then that you had the disease already. Um, and so sometimes it often like spread the stereotype um, that, that many people considered you know, Asian Americans bringing COVID-19 to the US. Um, so there was a lot of really tense unpacking that we had to do, um, but I think um, the anti-sewing squad really, in the end, really saw masks as a form of protection. And we're gonna really try to change the conversation just by making masks and creating access to them. Um, and so I, I remember very early on that it was um, a huge factor in, 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 in like how we wanted to conduct ourselves, even just going outside um, at the start of the, the pandemic. I hope you're documenting that in the book. People need to absolutely be confronted by that reality, what you just said. The fear of a pandemic is enough. But to then be afraid you'll be the recipient of violence because you've gone out to the supermarket and then deciding whether or not to wear a mask as a way to predict the extent to which you would be subject to that violence, it absolutely resonates. I had Rashawn Ray, a sociologist, on um, talking about African-American young men in mask wearing, and he described very similar kinds of calculations that African-American men were making in big cities. Um, and we, I just, we can't let that... that um, you said it so quickly and so artfully, but I think we have to really spend a lot of time with that. That has to be documented. It can't be lost from this from this moment. Um, we're we're really up on time. I want to just give you maybe a chance to um, give final thoughts. Pretty um, bringing you back in. Um, when's the book is done? I assume, or it's going to be done soon. When should we expect to see it? And any other thoughts you that something I didn't ask that you wanted to address as we're closing up. Um, you know, I'm learning so much about um, editing uh, a collection or an anthology. Um, and so we're, <laughs> we're in the copy editing phases of the book now to be kind of like detailed. Um, but the book is projected to come out in fall 2021. We right. saw the cover um, today and we're pretty excited about oh. some of the geeky, nerdy <laughs> aspects. No, that's um, and, you know, we, we do want this to be like a beautiful, um, document that again like traverses um these critical essays to ground and orient us and thinking about um uh oh my god did i just use an awful pun but to think to have us think about like as you say these um uh, trajectories that the the um book is a part of these conversations that are you know women of color feminisms um, as much as they are you know understanding and critiquing u.s orientalisms that you know also um, speak to like the asian body as a diseased body or as a fearful you know a body to be fearful of um and um you know instead kind of like understand um this uh you know again as a project of of radical care um and so yeah, there's it's it's beautiful. There's um, a lot of uh, creative pieces as well. Um, you know, recipes. If you want to kind of go back to thinking about, um, you know, all the cooking <laughs> folks have been doing in um, the homes. But there's there's also photos of of um, the masks themselves as a way to kind of honor 
the labor. And so, you know, I think in closing, that's what the Auntie Sewing Squad um, really taught me um, as a project, again, of mutual aid and radical care is how to really center that relationship of care um, and that, you know, we can define care to, to mean recognize the worth of the person who's giving as well as the worth of the person who's receiving. So we're excited. We're excited for the, the book. I'm excited for you. Chrissy, anything I forgot to ask that you wanted to add here at the end? Um, no, um, please watch out for our book. It's going to be published uh, fall 2021 um, and through University of California Press. So we're excited right. for folks to read it. I have been uh, an editor on a number of edited book projects, and I can say it's a very special kind of care and labor that goes into that as well. So I know what you're going through, and um, congratulations on that. And I hope that you'll come back on COVID calls um, when the book comes out in the fall, and we can do a kind of a launch and discussion um, with you as you, you'll have more time to think about it. This pandemic is is ongoing as well. I want to um, thank my guests, Chrissy Yi Lau and Preeti Sharma for their time today and just remind everyone you've been listening to COVID calls, which you can catch every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. And today was a special discussion in partnership with the LePage Center for History and the Public Interest of Villanova University. So I wanted to be sure to acknowledge the LePage Center for helping to bring us together in this, in this conversation as well. Tomorrow we'll be talking to uh, four librarians about the role of libraries and librarians in the pandemic. So please do join me for that tomorrow at at five, five o'clock. And thanks again to our guests. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow, five o'clock.